in, I believe I was in elementary school when I, I got my first skateboard. Um, well, it was really my, my only skateboard. <laughs> um, but I was very excited about it. I'm pretty sure it was on clearance at Kmart because that's probably the only way I would have bought it. Uh, I think I used, maybe even used my own money on that one. Um, and I continue to only buy things on clearance. But, but I was excited because I was going to be able to join um, all those wonderful people who ride skateboards. And I was going to be, be a cool, finally enter into the coolness of skateboarding. And I began to, to try it out on our street. And um, if you know me very well... I'm not necessarily the most balanced and coordinated individual, uh, but I figured I needed kind of a, a, a good push to, to learn this. So I decided um, in our neighborhood, my, my parents, they still live in this neighborhood, the same house. I live in a cul-de-sac, and there's one street that comes in that's pretty level, but then there's one that kind of comes down in a good, good um, hill. And I thought to myself, this would be a perfect place to learn to skateboard, to go down this hill and I knew it was a little bit of a risk, but, you know, go big or go home, right? I don't, actually, I don't think I've ever said that. So, but, um, so I got up at the top of the hill, and um, I was like, I could do this. And I started going, and started going faster. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of maybe a little bit risky. And I started to go faster and faster. And I thought to myself, I have no idea how to stop. I have not learned how to stop. And so I did the only thing I knew how to know how to stop, and that was to use my whole body to, to stop on the, on the pavement, because I was nearing an intersection, and I didn't know what else to do, and I, conti- I still have just, just faintly a couple little scars on my hand from the day I learned to, to skateboard. Uh, I think that the skateboard pretty much sat in the garage um, next to my bike. I could ride a bike just barely, but I could still ride a bike. Uh, there's times in life where we do take um, risks in life. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're totally unnecessary. But we are called throughout life to take risks. And a lot of those that are most important are risks to love and care for people, um, risks to, to enter into lives, and even risks to, to serve our God. And to, as we talk about a lot, dying self that we might serve and love. And in Ruth, there's huge risk. And especially in this chapter, in chapter 3, we're kind of in Act 3 of this story. And we see this, this huge risk of Ruth, but it's loving to care for Naomi. So we're going to walk through that a little bit today. And as we enter into this section, this chapter in Ruth, it begins really, we got to look back one verse into chapter 2. So if you have it open, your Bible's open to Ruth 3, look at the verse before Chapter 2, verse 23, that says, So she kept close, this is Ruth, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother in law. And remember, we have Ruth and Naomi. Remember, Naomi and her family, they had left Judah, left the promised land, gone to Moab because there's famine, and Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Her two sons die, but before they die, they had married Moabite women, but those women had no children, and so Naomi's left without any grandchildren, without any heirs, anyone to carry on the line of Elimelech. And Ruth, though, she clings to Naomi. She binds her life to Naomi, and not just to Naomi, but to 
the one true God to Yahweh, and she follows her back to Judah. And here she's providing for Naomi by going and gleaning, by gathering of the, the leftovers. And she ends up in a field of Boaz, and Boaz takes care of her and says, glean here. And we've learned, and we'll, we'll talk about it in a bit, that Boaz is a relative, a relative of Naomi. So a couple months have passed by in this, har- in this harvest of barley and wheat, and there's been no movement forward with any kind of relationship with Ruth and Boaz. Uh, they have a lot of grain, a lot of provision, but things have not moved forward. And Naomi, we'll see, seems like this is a time that she wants to kind of get things going. She's going to make things happen a bit here, and she kind of nudges things along. And we'll see that dialogue and things happen. As we go into this, as we see the dialogue of Naomi and Ruth, there's been a lot of kind of debate and things. Is, is Naomi, is she walking in wisdom? Is she giving moral advice here? What is she calling Ruth to do? Is she calling her to be, take too great of a step? What is her motivation of her heart? And I think a lot of times people read into the motivation, but I think as we get into chapter 1, we see her speak, her motivation for Ruth. So we enter in and we see this rest that she desires, this needed rest, but a rest that she desires for Ruth. In verse 1, let me read that. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may, get me, that it may be well with you? So what does she desire? She's pushing Naomi, our Ruth, forward in this. She desires for her to have rest. She desires for things to go well with her. She wants her to have that provision, that protection, that peace, that life that we talked about last week. And these are the desires on her heart. And Naomi desires for her, Ruth, to be married, to have children, to carry on the the heritage and the line of her deceased husband of Elimelech and to carry that along and for them to inherit the land. And she's seen Ruth cling to her, to love her, to show her that hesed love, that stubborn, steadfast love. And she's seen now Ruth labor hard these last two or three months, just laboring to bring in provision for Naomi. And, and she wants, Naomi wants her to find rest and to find life and to have provision. Her motive is good, I believe, in this. And as we look at Ruth, the whole setting of Ruth is in the time of the judges. And during the time of the judges, there was a lot of rebellion, and God would provide for them, and they would turn back to him, and they would find rest. And there's several times within Judges that talks about them turning back to God, and then God providing rest for the land, rest for the people. See that in Judges 3, and a couple times, and in Judges 5, and in Judges 8, this rest. So there's this theme of rest, and we see she desires rest and well-being. And she looks to Boaz to be the provider of that. And she says in chapter and verse 2, Is not Boaz a relative with whose women you were? So it reminds her, hey, Boaz. Remember, he is the one who is a close redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. He is one that can provide this rest, this well-being, this peace. And if you remember that we talked about how Boaz is this kinsman redeemer, he's one that he's a close relative of, of the husband of Naomi who's passed, and he can step in and marry Ruth, and through the first child of Ruth, could carry on the name of Elimelech, could also be able to redeem the land that belongs to them. And she's saying, Boaz, he's the one who can come in and step in and be through the provision here. And 
And the plan unfolds, and Naomi tells her what she should do. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So we're going to kind of walk through all the little details just in a little bit as Ruth walks through them. But as we see this, we see Naomi kind of give this huge push forward. She's being a matchmaker in this. And if, if you're like me, whenever you hear the word matchmaker, a whole song goes in your head from the fiddler on the, on the roof, right? Um, I won't, I, it's just tempting to sing. But, so she's, but she's nudging, uh, maybe it's a strong nudge for this to happen. And again, there's some commentaries on the book of Ruth that are really harsh on Naomi and saying that she's not trusting God and maybe trying to make things happen in her own timing and even possibly calling Ruth to commit sin to even seduce Boaz. Uh, But I think these commentaries and these comments are harder than the book of Ruth is on Ruth. And we've talked about that. We've seen what her motivation, she desires for it to go well with her. She doesn't want to put her in a situation where she's going to be accused of and being punished for sexual sin or entering into that type of relationship. And we even know Boaz, she's already, we already know Boaz is a worthy man, a man of character, and it just uh, goes outside of the whole tone, I think, of the book of Ruth. So she's seeking the well-being of Ruth, Naomi is, as she, as she is sent out. And we continue on, and we're going to see this thing. And this first scene kind of ends, and we're going to transition. But as we transition, we do remember that there is a care, a desire for her to find rest. And this is not a new thing for Naomi to Ruth. If we look back in chapter 1 of Ruth in verse 9, in verse 9, we hear these words. It says, may the Lord grant, this is Naomi as she's speaking to her daughters-in-law, one of them being Ruth, may the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. Remember there she was saying, don't come back with me. Stay in Moab. Find a life there. Find rest. So she's desired that. Her motivation is good. And then we find also this theme of rest in Ruth is Ruth is one who has sought refuge and rest where? Under the refuge of the Lord God hear that from the the words of Boaz in chapter 2, verse 12. It says, May the Lord reward you. This is Boaz speaking to Ruth. May the Lord reward you for what you have done. That she's clung to to Naomi and cared for her. And And may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you come for refuge. So she's already come for refuge under the one true God. She's bound her life with the one true God and finding refuge there. So we see this, and God is still working out this, his circumstances and his provision through Boaz that she might find rest. And as we see this theme of rest, not just in Ruth, but we see it throughout the scriptures, and we see it throughout the Old Testament as well, as the Lord provided days of rest and years of rest. There is Sabbath rest that he gave his people. And, and the Sabbath is this huge theme throughout, and it points to different things, like in Exodus 20, verse 8, 
It talks about how the Sabbath was to point them, remind them that God is the sovereign creator of all of the universe and that he created all things and then he rested. And then Deuteronomy 5, 12, we see another purpose of the Sabbath was to remind them that they were taken out of Egypt, that they were in slavery, and then he brought them into rest. And it reminds us, too, of the rest that we have as we are rescued by Jesus out of sin. And then also in Hebrews chapter 4, we see that there is this call that there is uh, coming again, that Christ will return and that there will be eternal rest when the fulfillment of all of God's redemption plan comes to being and we find rest in him. I think of a quote, a well-known quote by St. Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you want to name him or call him. Uh, it says, Those, though thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And then even more, Famous, hopefully, the words of Jesus that I quote often. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there's this call of rest, this theme of rest. And it's a rest from anxieties and cares and burdens and toils and struggles. And we're called not to carry all of them. When we looked at in First Peter Chapter 5, called to humble ourselves under the strong, mighty hand of our God, and that he will lift us up in his due time, in the right timing, and we humble ourselves by casting our cares and our anxieties upon him. And this rest that we desire, it's not just a, a physical rest. Yes, there, is a, a, there will be a full physical rest in the Lord, and we find that, but it's a rest from struggles, a rest from guilt, a rest from even just feeling that we're not enough. A rest from not just living up to everyone's expectations. Sometimes it's a rest from just trying to figure out life. A rest from all the daily demands of life. And we live in a time where there's a continued push to be more or look different or to, to measure up. And we have social media with all the highlight reels of everyone's life. And we sit back and we, we try to, to measure up. But we're called to find rest in Jesus and true rest and a full rest. I think of Jesus saying that he came to give us life and give it abundantly and, and give us joy and give it full. And as we studied early, the very beginning of this year, remember we walked through John 15 and we were called to abide, to abide in Jesus. And in him we find rest. John 15, 9 says, as the Father has loved me, Jesus speaking, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. Rest. So the theme of rest is not insignificant in the Old Testament and Scripture. We're called into that. And this rest that she will find in Boaz points us to the rest that we find in Jesus. So even in our home or with our kids, may we be that, that we don't add burdens to the shoulders of kids and relatives and others, but we find rest and we should point them to Jesus again and again. So rest. And then we enter into risk that happens here. There's this loving risk that Ruth is willing to step in, and it's verses 5 through 7. I might have it wrong on the slide. Uh, I have 5 through 9 maybe, but it's 5 through 7. Next one there. There we go. It's really 5 through 7. So, yeah, I thought I had missed that. But let me begin. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So Ruth, she hears all these things, and she realizes, yes, I will do it. So she takes this risk, and there's risk of being potentially mocked by those around her, rejected by Boaz. There could be accusations of sin for her going down there and sleeping at the threshing floor. 
that she could have been taken advantage of during that time, but she's willing to take this risk and follow after this, these words and trust these words of Naomi. And she goes because she loves Naomi and she wants to provide for her. And she goes. So she risks. And she goes down. And then the setting, we see the setting of this whole scene in verse 6. And she went down to the threshing floor. So she goes to, to the threshing floor. And this is a place where it was uh, an open area, a large open area that was either on bedrock or on hard ground, on hard clay. And on that, in that area, they would take the wheat or the barley and they would beat it out. And then it, the grains would separate from the chaff and they'd throw it, it up and the wind would come and blow that chaff away and they were they're getting the grain. So that she goes down to the threshing floor during this time. And it's a, the right time for her in the evening to, to be able to approach Boaz when he is alone and be able to then nudge him forward and reckon, have him recognize that she desires for him to marry her. So Ruth also prepares and in the instructions by Naomi, she called Ruth to, to wash up, to put perfume on, to put on a cloak, and then go down. And Naomi here, some have suggested that she's going, calling her to, to dress in a seductive way, but that doesn't seem to really fit with the character of Ruth, or with Boaz, or even with Naomi, with go, what's going on. It's more likely that she's calling Ruth that at, up to this point she's been dressed in, in more clothes. So not, not pajamas, but um, like clothes that she was mourning over the death still of her husband. And in being in such clothing, it would signify that, that this was not a time that she is looking for anyone to marry her or to redeem her. Uh, so there's a change in her presence signifying to Boaz that I am one who is ready to find someone to marry so we see this. And again, there's lots of cultural things that are going on here, and we need to be careful as we wade in, make sure we don't go off the rails. I think some people take the story way off the rails as they read through it. So there's a, a, a move to, for Ruth toward Boaz saying, hey, I'm ready to, be, to marry, and would you pursue me in that? Verse 7, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. So here he goes, and he is eaten. And remember, they're, they're pretty good meals, apparently, because when Ruth ate with Boaz, she ate, she was satisfied at lunch, and she had more than enough left over to take home to Naomi. So again, they're not just handing out Lunchables here. It was a full meal. He drinks there's wine, and his heart is merry. The New English translation translated that he, has, he was feeling satisfied, and literally his heart was good. Uh, so he had a full day's work, harvest is going well, a full meal, he's had some wine, he's laying down to sleep in the, in the in front of the pile of grain, and most likely they were there to guard the grain, and they slept there during the night. And... He is there in the right time, in the right place, away from others, so that Ruth has an opportunity to nudge Boaz forward in this. And Now, some, again, have indicated that maybe Boaz, actually, they think maybe he was drunk here. But as you read through this, as he wakes up, we're going to see him. He is very clear-headed. He's direct. He's wise. He has restraint. He's in control. And it's not a picture of someone 
um, drunk and out of control at all. Um, just not in character with who Boaz is, as described by the author of Ruth. So then it continues. Then she came, Ruth came softly and uncovered his feet, and, he, and she lays down. Again, lots of cultural things going on here that we have to wade through and try to understand what's happening here and, and ask what exactly is, has Naomi encouraged Ruth to do here and what are the moral implications of sexual overtones happening here? Is there sexual misconduct happening in this passage? And we know throughout the Old Testament there's plenty of stories of that, of sexual misconduct from that of Abraham and Hagar to even the origin of the Moabites through the incestual relationship of Lot and his daughter. And we talked about how the Moabites are the kind of the hillbilly cousins of the Jews. And so that it's not, um, that is not what's happening here. Um, in this, as Ruth uncovers Boaz's legs and lies down, this is a cue, a nonverbal indication of wanting, of requesting marriage from Boaz. And even that's confirmed as Naomi says, he will tell you what to do. Because she knew that this would be an indication of what she was desiring, that she was desiring marriage from him and him to pursue her in that, and that he would tell her what to do. Again, we're reminded, we kind of wade through these things of what is going on and what is being expressed. She's expressing, again, interest in Boaz marrying her. Um, and I, in our culture, we do that in different ways, just kind of initiating. I remember there was a time with, with Kelly. We'd been friends for a, a while, and she had no idea that I was maybe interested in she had moved from one apartment to another, and she was cleaning up her apartment. And it was on a Sunday afternoon, and I knew she was going to go clean. And I gave her a phone call. I said, hey, hey, could you use some help cleaning? And she said, I think I got it. And she hung up. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, that didn't go so well. And then she called, Then I didn't know, but she called her little sister and said, hey, this guy Dave, he called me and wanted to know. If, and she's like, her little sister was like, he, he's interested in you. Call him back right away. And she did call me back. And she said, yeah, I guess I could use your help. And, um, so anyway, so here, Ruth's just saying, hey, um, this is time. So, But there's a lot of risk. And she's risking a lot to love and care for Naomi. And we'll see in a little bit that Ruth, she could have pursued someone younger. She could have pursued anyone to marry and provide for her, but she goes after Boaz, who is older, but part of the family line that she can provide not just for herself, but for Naomi and for her line and her inheritance and the line of Elimelech, that it might continue. So she lovingly risks. And there's times where we're called to lovingly risk people, risk for people, to enter into difficult relationships. And we've talked about that even in humility, that we need so much grace and humility because it means risk our life often for others as we walk in to humility. Sometimes we could be, there could be accusations or we could experience loss and grief when we love. Uh, but she goes forward and we see this stubborn, steadfast love of Ruth for Naomi that's played out in these pictures. And then we see Boaz's response and we see really this obedient restraint of a Boaz, there's much restraint. Verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? So you can just imagine, it's the middle of the night, 
Uh, most likely, they're there guarding the grain, so they're probably on high alert a little bit, and all of a sudden, he wakes up with someone there, and it's kind of like, I know um, in our house, the way that our door is for our bedroom, on my side of the bed is closest to the door, and there's some nights where I wake up, and their face is there. They're of our kids, but their face is there, and you kind of, <gasps> it's like, okay, okay, we got to settle down, and it, it's um, frightening. So I can just imagine, he says, who are you? And this, um, and a kind of, maybe his voice cracked a little bit, I can only imagine. And he, he, he probably wipes the drool and off of his face and gets, and he's like, who are you? And Ruth says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wing over your servant, for you, uh, you are a redeemer. Or it could, maybe your translation is to spread your, your garment, uh, a corner of your garment over your servant. Um, it's a different wording for the same, or a different translation for the same wording. And this echoes back to Ruth 2, verse 12, that we already read before, where Boaz says, let me read it again, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge. So there's this picture of, of her taking refuge under the wing of Yahweh. And now Ruth is asking Boaz to be that provision, to be that protector. And, and she's not ultimately, uh, see, well, this phrase in it, she's requesting that he be the refuge through, through marriage. Uh, that's what's being requested here from him. And we're going to see that as we, we see in the context of all this, that this is the request that she's asking is that he be that protector through marriage. And this is also, we see this, the same wording that's used, this covering of, of the garment, of a, of a corner of a garment, it's used elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament. From David Strain, who's a pastor and a commentator, he said, she is proposing marriage to him. This is a euphemism for marriage in the Hebrew Bible. God himself uses it metaphorically to describe his covenant with Israel as a betrothal in Ezekiel 16.8. Let me just read Ezekiel 16.8. You can see this picture. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. So we see this picture. It's a symbolic declaration of of a husband providing and this picture of marriage and proposal that's being played out here. So in this, though, we do see that Boaz, he could have taken advantage of Ruth in any moment here. It's dark um, and it's this risky, this is a risky situation that she's entering in, but Boaz is restrained. He, not even in the smallest way, does he take advantage of Ruth in this moment. Uh, her purity is upheld, and Boaz, again, he's a man of great character, and he's stepping in to redeem, and there's great kindness that we see, and he expresses even the kindness of the Lord through his action. In verse 10, we continue And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you have asked. For all my fellow kinsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So we see that Ruth is one who is of great kindness, of great character, and 
And Boaz has seen this, this great kindness that she has shown first to Naomi and now to him in going not after anyone else, but following and providing through this redeemer of pursuing after Boaz. And there's great kindness in this. And he sees her great character, and the whole community is seeing the great character of Ruth. As she's, she's worthy, she's virtuous. And this is the same word that earlier was used to describe Boaz, and it's the same word used to describe the woman of, who fears the Lord at the end of Psalms, at the end of Proverbs, Proverbs 31. And actually, in, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth comes right after Proverbs uh, of that chapter of the woman of virtue. And they're kind of paired up there in the Hebrew Bible, in the canon of the Hebrew Bible. So here we see this. So Boaz here, again, she, he's not taking advantage of Ruth in any way in this vulnerable situation. He's showing great character and honor and restraint in the situation and he's walking through things well with her, and he gives her honor and speaks high words of honor and care and kindness to her as he should. It's a, a picture of how one, uh, how a man sh- should lovingly care for another. So we see that here. And then verse 12, this restraint continues. And now it's true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So here, again, this picture, he doesn't skip any steps. Um, He doesn't go and remove and step over any barriers that were there in accordance to how things should go according to the law of God. There was a redeemer. There's a family member closer than he that he was going to go to first. And even though he was willing and ready and, and most likely excited to be the redeemer and marry Ruth, uh, he's willing to be restrained and, and walk through the steps that were laid out in front of him. And he does go straight away. He says, I'm going to go straight away in the morning and I'm going to pursue her. So we see this, that he, he is able to just allow things to go by plan. He doesn't step over any obstacles. He doesn't short-circuit the way that God had lined out, that there is someone else that should step in first. And he doesn't overstep that, but allows uh, the, the sovereign God to play these things out, and he trusts in the word, the law of God that he was giving, and they walk forward. I think just this idea of restraint is important. There's so many times where we're maybe tempted to go outside of God's word to, to get what we feel um, we need most. Even if we know we're walking in disobedience, sometimes we step out of that. Um, sometimes we even enable maybe the emotion or love to be our guide and not God's word and the, the provisions that he has put before us. We could follow after even sexual desires and not walk according to God's plan. But here we're called to trust. We see him walk. Um, and say, yes, I will redeem, but there's another. Um, let's do things right. Let's walk through this well. That's an important way. There's so many t- ways where there's times where there might be an easier path to go in the immediate, but in the long term, it really short circuits what God is wanting to do, and it can cause us a lot more pain and heartache than following after the ways of our God. So there's restraint here. 
um, when temptation comes, he follows after um, the law and the way of the Lord. And we see things play out well as well because of this. So Ruth 3, verse 14. So she lay at his feet till morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So here Boaz, he's still concerned about the reputation of Ruth. He's concerned. He doesn't want anyone to to see and think that something had happened that should not have happened and to assume wrong of Ruth. And he's still protecting her. And there's a restraint and a care for her. And then finally, verses 15 through 18, we see this unresolved rescue that happens. Let me read through those verses. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, and the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Boaz, he doesn't send Ruth away empty. Remember, there's this theme of empty and full, and he's like, I'm not going to send you away empty. He anticipates that Naomi, he probably anticipates Naomi is behind this whole thing, um, and because she knew the custom, and it probably sent Ruth. And She doesn't want to send, send Ruth back empty and disappoint her, because things are unresolved. Things are unresolved. Rescuing redemption, they're, they're at hand, but it, it's still not fully resolved. And she give, or Boaz gives Ruth six measures of barley. And as I was studying this, there, there's some debate about really how much that was. Uh, one commentator suggested it could be as much as 80 pounds of barley, which I, I, seems to be a little bit unlikely. I think 80 pounds of barley would have ripped through um, her garment that she she had and and if he wanted her to sneak out subtly 80 um, pounds of barley would have totally just ruined all of that um, so that's probably what what's not the most significant thing here is the weight I think that it's the number of six um, he gives her six measures and six was known for for a number of it represented something incomplete unresolved because the number seven was the, the number of perfection of completion so there's a, a saying, hey, things are yet unresolved, uh, but I'm walking toward resolving these. So redemption and rescue is at hand at the horizon, but it's not yet here. And we've been talking about Naomi, how she's walking through this cloud of despair and loss. And we've walked through those clouds before. And it's begun to lift, but there's still some question, will this cloud fully lift? And will there be resurrection? Will there be hope here in the, the book that um, we provided for you guys, The Loving Life, and there's still four of them back there if you want one of those Loving Life books that uh, Paul Miller walks through the book of Ruth. I encourage you to grab one. But he talks about this idea of, of a J-curve, um, talking about how there's this idea of life, then death, and then resurrection um, that we see throughout Scripture. And we saw that in First Peter. We talked about glory, suffering and then glory. See that in the life of Jesus Christ, life, death, and then resurrection. We see it even in our baptism. We have the burial and the resurrection, death and resurrection. 
but we don't always know. We know ultimately when we see Jesus, there will be a full resolution of all these things. But we, we go through our lives, there's many, many of these many ups and downs. And sometimes we just wonder, when will that resurrection, when will that rescue come? And, and in that book, Paul says there's some lessons he's learned. And these are the things he learned. I think they're really helpful as we think about unresolved rescue. We don't know how or when rescue will come. We don't know how or when. It's God's work, not ours. We don't even know what a rescue will look like. We determine the timing of the rescue. I think that's huge. Sometimes we think this would be rescue in this. And then we find out, wow, that wasn't God's plan. And like Jesus, we must embrace the death that the Father has put in front of us. The path of resurrection is through dying, not fighting. And then finally said, if we endure, resurrection always comes. God is alive. Jesus is risen. The redemption will come. So even if we wait in the bottom sometimes of that J-curve, we know that there's resurrection ahead, ultimately through Jesus Christ. So we'd be reminded there is resurrection. Even in the story, there's some tension here. But we know that the end of the story that's pointing to a marriage, but also pointing to the birth of a child who's going to be the grandson of King David, who's in the line of King Jesus, our Redeemer. So we're reminded this morning, maybe you sit in a place where you know you need rest and rescue. And we find in Scripture that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the one who calls us to himself, that he died in our place, that our sins could be paid for, and then he rose against showing us that he conquered death and sin and the extent of his love that he's willing to die for us. And when we turn and trust in him, we enter into that rescue and we looked for the completion of it at his return. May we be reminded of those things this morning as we wrestle through and think through this book of Ruth. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we're so thankful for your kindness and mercy to us, that your steadfast love is great. We see pictures of it here in Ruth, but we know that you are the perfect one who loves us and has poured out a steadfast, stubborn love upon us that we see demonstrated in Jesus Christ who died for us but then rose again victorious. And we thank you, Lord. Help us to be a people that, that look to our, our rest in you. Help us to be a people that know that you call us to yourself and that through Jesus Christ that there is forgiveness, that there is rest even today, that we're reminded that when we find ourselves in relationship with Christ, that there's no condemnation, that there's forgiveness. We thank you for that. Lord, help us to be to a people that risk, a people that step out to love and care for others and point them to Jesus and the rescue that is found in him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Was we, this morning, we take... Of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of that rescue. We're reminded of his, his birth, um, his death, his suffering for us in our, our place, but then his resurrection. We're reminded that there is hope, even in the times where all we can see is the cloud around us. But we're reminded that resurrection is coming. We don't always know what it looks like as far as in our personal walk, of the different trials, but we know ultimately that when we, when we die, we'll be with Jesus, or when he comes again, we will be with him fully, 
and that there will be a new heaven and new earth, and we can be reminded of those things and look to eternity in the midst. And as we take of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of the death of Jesus Christ in our place with the bread that represents his broken body and the cup, his spilt blood, that he did die for us on the cross, but then rose again victorious. And we celebrate those things this morning, and we can be reminded of his rescue. Sometimes it feels unresolved, but we can remember 